Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show. Today we'll be talking about a subject that uh, we've been wanting to discuss for quite a while now. It's the afterlife. It's the idea, the reality of what happens to human beings after we've passed on. Now, uh, maybe we can preface this program by saying that if you don't think that such a possibility exists, you might listen with an open mind. Uh, if you really have no uh, openness to these ideas, then uh, it would perhaps be a waste of your time <laughs> to listen in. Uh, well, because what we're about to present, um, we find at least to be fairly compelling information to suggest that uh, souls if we can be said to have souls or consciousness, uh, does go someplace, uh, not in the physical sense that we would come to understand about reality, but that there is a, uh, an ongoing um, life uh, once we've physically died to this reality. So I would say that, um, well, for one thing, there's a lot of information out there that points to the possibility of an afterlife. We'll be getting into some of those things today, but uh, we'll also be focusing more on those descriptions that have come to us of what a heaven may be like, what its function is, um, what it exists to do, uh, how it um, functions in the context of a cosmology that... Um, that's been presented to us in all sorts of esoteric literature. Uh, I would say that um, what we can do is we can acknowledge that uh, a lot of people have had near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences. Um, they've seen apparitions of people long gone who've passed away, uh, ghosts, poltergeists, uh, a great plethora of paranormal activity, uh, things that would fall under that, that kind of grouping that suggest a, uh, a non-physical, in the sense that we understand it, reality uh, that a lot of materialists and a lot of um, so-called scientists would attempt to uh, poo-poo and dismiss out of hand. Uh, because of their their paradigm of, of the way they think on the world and of reality, so um, yeah. Uh, well, before I, before yeah. you get into that, I just want to comment on what you just said, um, because today we won't be talking about like the evidence for the afterlife, or at least not in any great depth. We might mention bits and pieces here and there, but for for those of you who are not familiar with that, I'm just going to recommend a couple books. One came out recently. I think it was just last year. Um, by Leslie Kane, who's a journalist, and it's called Surviving Death. It's a pretty good book, laying out kind of all of the all of the different areas of evidence suggesting an afterlife, and it's pretty well done and pretty comprehensive for what it is. Um, something a bit more academic and going even deeper is by the philosopher Stephen Browdy, uh, his book called Immortal Remains, and he it, it's a great book to read just for because he does cover pretty much all the evidence. His conclusion is inconclusive 
he argues that it's not uh, it's not possible to know with any certainty whether that evidence actually points to an afterlife. But the only reason he can say that is because he says the alternative is that basically psi or um, psychic abilities or whatever you want to call that element that must be true to a very strong degree. Um, it would be like either or. Um, in terms of what hypothesis you can go with, like you can look at the evidence and say, okay, if if we don't accept psi, then it seems like um, uh, the afterlife must be a reality. This isn't exactly how he argues it, though. On the other hand, if we accept the evidence for psi, we can't prove any of that afterlife evidence actually suggests an afterlife, but it must actually prove that psi exists in a in a to a remarkable degree. So. While he's inconclusive, he at least he he's open to the possibility and lays out the evidence. And then the third one would be a book that we talked about before, I think, um, a book by David Ray Griffin on, um, I think it's called um, like Process Philosophy and Parapsychology or something like that. If you just Google David Ray Griffin Parapsychology, it'll come up. He also deals with the like the vast literature on the topic and comes to the conclusion that it is possible and probably and even probable that the afterlife exists so or an afterlife um so if you want a background in all the evidence and the philosophical arguments and um from leslie kane's book just a an overview of all the evidence um those would be good resources to go to yeah i would just add to that list uh this book by stafford betty when did you ever become less by dying it's a short book. It's very well written. Uh, he's an academic, and um, it really covers a, a number of the uh, um, the areas of uh, of suggestion uh, that point to the um, possible the strong possibility of an afterlife. So, um, yeah, with that, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll launch right into those ideas we find most compelling uh, on this subject. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that's most interesting is to me is that the, there, there's this kind of, you know, that, that list of books that you had just, um, made mention of Harrison, which, which is this kind of analysis, uh, that that's kind of made by parapsychologists and academics that, that looks at it from a scientific point of view. And then there's a whole body of literature out there that, um, that is just almost pure, unadulterated content that has been communicated through uh, spirit mediums or individuals who have been inspired to do uh, automatic writing, which is a, a process by which they're being um, told something and, and a kind of vehicle through their writing of all of these messages that they've been told. And uh, and there's a, a rather large body of um, of work uh, on this type of content. Um, one in particular that we'll be discussing today is a favorite of mine. It's called "The Life Beyond the Veil." Uh, this was transcribed by a, a Reverend G or George Vale Owen um, in the. Uh, this started in the 19 teens. Um, and I think we have a, a picture of him, um, Adam. 
Yeah. So I'm not sure which one that is, but um, he uh, he was quite a um, quite a big figure in his days. Even though I uh, I had never heard of him until a few years ago. Um, what what had happened was his his the messages that he was conveyed and had written out were of such a high quality that uh, they were picked up and distributed by a um, a weekly or a weekly publication in the UK. Um, he was a, a pastor in a church, a very living in, in very modest means with his family, and um, he kind of uh, shot to fame uh, with his writings because uh, it gave a lot of people a great amount of um, faith and hope uh, that um, that there was indeed a uh, more to this life than they had been told, uh, in essence. Um, he was supported by such figures as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, uh, who was the author of uh, the Sherlock Holmes books. Um, and uh, he was known internationally. Uh, there was an article, I think we have a clip of it, uh, from a publication in, in Brooklyn, New York. So... Uh, he gave talks, um, his writings were widely distributed, uh, and, um, and we'll be reading a few passages uh, from it, from this uh, text today, which hopefully gives you some idea of why he was hailed and appreciated to the extent that he was. Um, and I just thought I would start with um, uh, a description of what the world is in the afterlife, according to uh, Vale Owen. Um, so he writes, All these zones of which we have spoken are inhabited by beings according to their degree, who progress from one sphere to a higher as they accumulate knowledge within themselves. You will see from what we have already written that as we advance from the lowest to the highest spheres, there comes a region of spheres which are interplanetary, inasmuch as they embrace within their circumference more planets than one. Still advancing, we come to a state where the spheres are of such a diameter that they are interstellar. That is, they embrace within their circumference not only more planets than one, but more stars or suns than one. All these are filled with beings according to their degree of sublimity, of holiness, and of power, whose influence extends to all, both spiritual and material, within the sphere to which they have attained. We have but advanced, you see, from planet to star, and from star to stars in their grouping. Beyond are spheres more awful still and more tremendous. But of these, we in the tenth sphere know that little indeed and nothing certain. But you will be ably faintly to realize by a large effort of your imaginative powers the meaning we had in mind when we wrote last evening of him whose name is to us unknown and unknowable. So, when you worship the Creator, you have, I suppose, no very definite idea of the order of Creator you intend. It is easy to say you mean the creator of all, but what do you mean by all? I would love to read more from this passage. It's beautiful and compelling, um, but 
<laughs> I suppose we have a lot we want to get to today. Uh, suffice it to say in this um, this opening that um, Vale Owen uh, was contacted um, initially by his deceased mother, and uh, I believe at one point by his deceased child, um, who is from the other side also in communication with other, um, let's say, beings of higher station in the afterlife who had uh, also, as a group effort, spoken to Vale Owen and conveyed to him many things about the uh, reality of the afterlife. Well, I think it's, it's interesting what you're... Uh, the description of the, I guess, the hierarchy of beings being based on knowledge. Was that what you said? Mm-hmm. Basically knowledge because, you know, in the previous shows we've done on um, Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meanings, one thing that I found really interesting is that at the core of his, these meta categories he has for existence, uh, you know, the known and the unknown and the knower, uh, basically being just present in every conscious person's life and we are biologically uh, adapted i guess in some way to this to this these basic structure this basic structure of the universe and that at its core is is knowledge and something very uh very critical to the entire you know the entirety of our existence and so then when you think uh, when you know when I'm hearing you say that, I'm just thinking that it's in some way that matches the framework that we understand of existence itself. That there is in the world that we see around us a hierarchy of of beings. That you know, a lot of it is is knowledge. But I mean, you in this way, it seems like knowledge is the prime criteria. The you know the entire hierarchy is. It's not like whatever competence hierarchy or whatever, but it's knowledge in that very fundamental sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to kind of share my my outlook on the afterlife kind of evidence and all the stuff in these books before getting into a couple points. And that's just that, like, I don't know what to think about all of it because a lot of it's contradictory. A lot of it sounds really cool. And like, I'll read these books and be like, oh, that's very it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. It's like reading a science fiction book or something because they're, the ideas are just very intriguing and eye-catching, you know, in a non in a in a non-visual way. <laughs> but it's hard to know what to think, like what to take seriously. So one of the things that I've been doing while reading this stuff is to try to see how it might, regardless of its truth value, like regardless of whether this is actually the case for exactly how the afterlife is. What can it, what can I glean from that about ordinary life? What implications might it have for, um, for how I live my life and how humans live their lives? So on that subject right there, you, you have this recurring theme in all this, uh, mediumistic literature about the afterlife of this, cosmos that is structured hierarchically in levels of planes or or uh, dimensions or whatever you have the and oftentimes you'll get different numbers for number of planes like seven planes 10 planes 12 planes or whatever 
And so, like you pointed out, Corey, for me, that is interesting in that it reflects the reality that we, that we find ourselves in right now, you know, as the living, that, there, that the, we can parse reality, we can parse human interaction and human being into those types of hierarchies. And it is reflected in everyday life. So you, I, I think it's hard, to, it's hard for anyone to deny when you look at a group of individuals that on any given feature, they will rank according to some criteria. And the criteria for these books, it, it's, it's as if they are recommending or pointing out a, uh, a set of criteria that aren't generally recognized among the, 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 the public. So if you look at any given society, you can, you can point out all their shallow features and you know, the things they worship, whether it's money and status and wealth or, or uh, talent in some degree, like in sports or, or music or or academic ability, but kind of like if you go back to some of the early Christian writings, they it's it's like they're saying, well, those categories, those hierarchies are irrelevant. Here, here are the things that really matter, and you find that in in philosophies and religions, not explicitly dealing with the afterlife, just about how to live your life here. It's what does what really matters, and. So I think those that it's kind of a, a uh, what's the word like a transvaluation or something. It's a for me it's almost like a call to to re to to revalue your your own values to say what what really matters, and this it's actually it comes down to or you can see it in something very practical like if you if you read studies and interviews that people have done with um, with people who are approaching death or who are about to die and ask them what matters and what their biggest regrets are, they, you find that prior to dying that people have remark- remarkably similar things that they, that they value now that they're older that they, that they feel like they should have valued beforehand, and that is really their relationships, the, the way that they've behaved with their family and friends, and um, the kind of not necessary the like the legacy they'll leave behind not in terms of their their social status or anything like that but the legacy of of who they are and who they who and what they will represent to the people that survive them so you you find that that radical shift in in values just in the normal aging process and then when you add in the afterlife stuff if you get into like uh, new de- or near death experiences and things like that, it, you you have a similar thing where these people who have these experiences who who die and then get uh, tr- like translated to this other afterlife realm, they experience that they they often have like a life review where they look back and see all of the all of the the mistakes that they've made from this new perspective mm-hmm. that they're re re evaluating their their entire life and all the choices they've made from a from a different perspective from a new perspective and oftentimes afterwards they they will change their the way they live their life in some way that will now reflect those new values and so the the after the the afterlife experience the the near death experience has this this effect of of changing the way that you approach life and that you live your life so you can do the same thing when reading all these things, um, regardless of whether you think they're true or not. I think there's something that can be, there's a lot that can be gleaned from from this new perspective because it's basically 
um, it, it's basically presenting this picture of this radically different perspective on life from what a lot of people have generally, either because they don't think about it or because they have rigid beliefs already. And then, and then using that as this, as this model to then compare your present self with. And that's also, if we go back to maps of meaning, that's the, the diagram, that, that core diagram of maps of meaning of the, the, the unbearable present and then the ideal future. And, and it's through the, the constant comparison with that ideal future and that, that will um, determine how you, how you bring about the future in the present, what goals, what goals you have in mind and what means you use to attain those goals. So the just studying this kind of stuff can can reshape that picture. That's that that revolutionary um, shift that Peterson talks about of totally changing your outlook, changing because if you change the your worldview, the way you see the world, and you change your ultimate goals and aims, that you you've moved on to a you know a different uh, a di- different diagram, a different trajectory, and so. Um, but one of the books I've been reading is this one by Geraldine Cummins, The Road to, Immor- or the Road to Immortality. We'll be talking a bit about it, but um, um, just as a just as a brief summary and introduction, there's a lot of things in there that that I that I've been looking at in terms of that. Like, what does that say about about life now, and what are the implications for for action for 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 viewing the world and the the self within the world and and your place within the world how does that how does that change when you look at things you know in terms of this new light yeah the the stories that we tell uh, ourselves and one another about death uh they're extremely significant for how we uh, live our lives and you can you know nowhere is that more evident than uh especially in you know like these the radical jihad uh type mm-hmm you know, mythological imagination that, you know, if you are completely fearless in, in battle and, um, you know, you, you just, you know, suicide kind of a way of fighting, that's how you know that you will be guaranteed um, Allah's pleasure because you gave up everything to the will of Allah and determined uh, it was up to him whether you would live or die. And, you know, so basically being a good, whatever, a good radical jihadi, that's one of the, you know, the traits and that's conditioned by an attitude and a belief in the afterlife. And, you know, I mean, that's just one extreme example, but it's, uh, it's something that, I mean, we've been telling stories about the, uh, the afterlife for, you know, just eons for as long as, you know, we really, we know that we've been telling stories. It's reasonable to, you know, to, to want a story that's more, that's more accurate than it is, you know, just pure dogma or, or, or craziness. Um, and in the, in like recent years, like in the 20th century, uh, a philosopher Raymond Moody came up with that term, the near-death experience, like back in the 1960s. And so that's, you know, then the modern, you know, materialistic paradigm, you know, of academia, um, you know, even though there, you know, a lot of these researchers are clearly wouldn't be described as materialists, it still fits in within like the bigger, larger paradigm as, you know, these near-death experiences and trying to compare them to uh, hallucin- in a hallucinogenic drugs and finding the commonalities and what is the afterlife and you know is there life after death or but you know for you know in ancient cultures 
it was it seemed like there was much more of a the otherworldly journey, like the shamanistic type journey, the fact that there are worlds that we can't see and they exist all around us. It's just, uh, you know, some fundamental aspect of human nature that there are gods, there are places where these gods reside. Um, there is something uh, higher than us and, there's, and that it has this, you know, the unknown ex- extends throughout time and space for eternity and is populated by all sorts of different um, worlds. It's just this infinite expanse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, I was also reading that the road to immortality and, you know, different uh, books on uh, the afterlife. And I, and I couldn't help, but, you know, be struck with that, that impression of this, of, you know, if there was one thing to take away from all of the, all of the research on, you know, sigh and and the afterlife and shamanic you know initiations all the and you know even modern day research that that there's a lot more um there's a there's a lot more going on um that needs some sort of a some sort of study using the methods that you know that we have today Mm -hmm. using like actual um i mean you know because like we we we're not going to talk a lot about evidence but the, the problem is, is that, you know, the kinds of evidence that we want, you know, the, that we could even hope to get in, you know, from in this kind of a field would have to be the kinds of evidence that would be ruled out a priori by um, materialist, you know, mm-hmm. such, such as like seances, such as, you know, uh, channeling, such as, you know, all of the different kinds of evidence that, that, um, that was being utilized in like the 19th century, right. By mm-hmm. the society for psychical research and, you know, and that continues to a large part um, today, but really kind of relegated to the, you know, the loony bin, so yeah. to speak, <laughs> you know, it's not considered actual, but at the same time, like I said, it is important. Our beliefs about the afterlife um, are very significant to us as a species. They determine how we act in our daily life, mm-hmm. whether, you know, whatever the great beyond wants us to um, seek knowledge and, you know, uh, live a Christian lifestyle while, you know, in, in the pursuit of heaven in, you know, the afterlife, or if, you know, or if the, uh, the great beyond wants us to, you know, act like crazy jihadis now to, you know what I mean? So that we could be promised something in the afterlife. It's, uh, it's not, uh, you know, I think, uh, I also bring the attitude that it's not that critical to have like a detailed map of what the afterlife is, because I, you know, as long as I'm, you know, you're living your life in the best way possible that, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, especially in, you know, the West and kind of a modern liberal mindset would say that that's, that's good enough. You know, I'm not hoping to go to heaven or hoping for this or that, but if your value system is based on the pursuit of knowledge, then this is obviously one area that is um, that is still in the, you know, the territory of the unknown and has probably been shut off to people, um, you know, by, uh, you know, uh, for selfish interests, you know, and it, it's obvious, you know, that you can't really have the government come out and say, we're going to solve the mystery of death for everyone once and for all, you know? Well, well Corey, you've said so many interesting things that, uh, that are, are um, commentable on, uh, earlier you mentioned that, you know, this is a, you know, that, that there are worlds unseen and unknown to us that, 
that permeate our reality that we're largely ignorant of. Um, you know, m many, many people go to school for so-called religious instruction, but does that really include spiritual instruction in, in, in the way that uh, perhaps we're trying to uh, explain to ourselves here today? Um, so, so there's that. And, uh, you know, your other point about, um, well, you, you made a few points, and, and one of them just made me think that everything that we, everything that's popular about our understanding of the world and, and science uh, and, and, uh, and reality and life and death and values uh, is kind of pushing Western civilization towards the belief that uh, this is not only everything that is, but that uh, you want to uh, accrue as much power and, and, and wealth and uh, short-term gratification for yourself as possible w without this acknowledgement of, of um, the value of knowledge and without uh, the aim of uh, growing oneself as a, uh, as a vehicle towards um, being a source of love and help to other people. Um, because it's, it's not only knowledge that would seem to uh, help uh, individuals grow in the afterlife in these various hierarchical spheres that are said to exist, um, but it's also their kind of willingness and, and the responsibility that they choose to take uh, to carry out definite tasks. So um, one of the things that this literature uh, suggests quite strongly is that it isn't some uh, passive, navel-gazing uh, life of, of, you know, thinking completely on past things, but of taking on very definite tasks um, and, and work that is of the nature of... of uh, helping others to bring others to understanding uh, within that realm, but also in the realm of humanity. Um, and that's also, in large part, the purpose of a lot of these books and the reasons why, um, you know, these books even exist. It's because there is, according to them, uh, a, uh, an impetus, a desire to uh, assist humanity in, in knowing that there's more to life than this very veiled uh, 3D experience of ours. Oh, I just wanted to read one quote um, just to follow up on, that, on the points that you made. It's from the book that uh, we've been reading, the uh, Geraldine Cummins, uh, The Road to uh, Immortality. The reason, therefore, for the universe and for all appearances, for even the little mundane joys and sorrows of human beings, is to be found in the term evolution of spirit, the need for complete fulfillment, which can be obtained through limitation, through the expression of the spirit in form. For only through that expression can spirit grow, developing from the embryo, only through manifestation and appearance can spirit obtain fulfillment. For this purpose were we born, for this purpose, we enter and pass through myriad worlds or states, and always the material universe is growing, expanding, giving fuller and fuller expression to mind. The purpose of existence may be summed up in a phrase. 
the evolution of mind and matter that varies in degree and kind, so that mind develops through manifestation, and in an ever-expanding universe, ever increases in power and gains thereby the true conception of reality. The myriad thoughts of God, those spirits which inform with life all material forms, are the lowest manifestation of God, and must thus learn to become God-like, to become an effective part of the whole." Now, it's a very interesting hypothesis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Harrison, can you describe a little bit about the, you know, this book and the author? Sure. So, who, who wrote those words? Yeah. So, I think we have a picture of her. Yeah. So, this is Geraldine Cummins. Um, well, Elon might have more details than me, but uh, she was uh, basically, she was one of these mediums that engaged basically in uh, automatic writing. So she'd go into like a light trance and then just start writing. In the introduction, they have a a really cool description of how this would happen. She'd basically go into this trance and and her assistant, like the, the, I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman next to her, would basically have like this, these sheets of paper and she'd just start writing. And then um, once she she was down a page, the other person would like take it out and put another page in and then she'd continue on. And like no punctuation or spaces, so just just writing the letters, all the words jumbled together. And and then they might stop for the night and come back the next day and, and then pick up right where it left off. There are a lot of cases like this in the parapsychological literature of automatic writers like this who, um, I can't remember the name of the, the, one of the most famous ones. It might have been Leonora Piper. I can't remember if that was her or not. Who would, um, um, who would write um, novels and whole books like this, sometimes separated from um, like the sessions between weeks or months and picking up right where they left off and the, they wouldn't need any editing. Like they were complete works just as if, ta- as if taken from dictation. And the... The person, the the spirit that was allegedly um, inspiring these words, was that of Frederick Myers, who was one of the one of the original founders of the Society for Psychical Research. He'd written a a book that is kind of a forgotten classic called "The Human Personality and Its Survival After Death," and this was the book. I've mentioned it on a previous show, just in passing. William James gave it a great review, saying that it contains like the the entirety of our of our knowledge speaking about psychology, because uh, Myers was such a such a great researcher. Like I've got I've got Human Personality, and it's it's like two volumes, two like seven hundred page volumes of everything from, and it's not just parapsychological stuff like psychical research, as they called it. It's all kinds of weird, interesting bits of psychology from like hypnotism and um, altered states and um, just kind of all of the all of the stuff that you might even hear about in psychology courses but that don't really they don't go into much depth about um, various forms of automatism which is like automatic writing or like a, a, a Ouija board or a spirit board because a lot of people um, who have tried a Ouija board, for instance, think that, well, like we, when you're trying it as kids, you think that when it's moving around, oh, well, the other person must be must be moving it, and they think you're moving it. In fact, neither of you are consciously moving it. There are there are all kinds of phenomena like this where the where if you take away the how, how to phrase it when you take away the belief or the 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 things that force you to believe that you're that you are acting and moving consciously, then that opens up the space for 
for your limbs basically to move on their own unconsciously. At least that's the way I kind of understand it based on reading about these automatisms. So, well, we could go down a whole rabbit hole there, but that's essentially how this, how this book was written. Each of the chapters kind of came in one of these um, automatic writing sessions. Did you have anything to add about her or? Well, I just thought it was funny that uh, William James gave a, a glowing review uh, of, of his work of, uh, what was his name? Of, uh, Frederick Myers. Frederick Myers. Because, uh, and must have been inspired to, because in the 1970s, Jane Roberts, who um, folks might know for her Seth books, uh, which, are, which is uh, pretty good, pretty interesting in any case, channeling material, um, through Jane Roberts, William James uh, wrote his own after death biography. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, you know, he's like, well, if, uh, if this other guy is going to do it, I'm going to do it too. <laughs> And, and certainly he had, a, he had a lot to say that was quite interesting. I haven't read the book in a, in a very long time, but I, I just thought that was, you know, there's this whole, um, you know, you have these, these kinds of anonymous uh, angels, for lack of a better word, or, or, um, uh, or beings living that are trying to communicate these truths. And you also have these, these guys who are living here who are saying, hey, I, I've made it to the other side, and I've got yeah. something to tell you guys. <laughs> and it's kind of important. Um, so I, I just thought that was, that was very interesting. Yeah, and these would be the guys to do it because, <clears throat> like, William James and Fred Myers were um, not only... Well, Myers, I believe, was a classicist. Uh, James was a psychologist, but they were both intensely interested in in what we'd call parapsychology today. And not a lot of people know that about William James. Like, he's still well-regarded in the scientific community for his uh, principles of psychology, which he wrote, but not a lot of people know that he was, he was very, very much involved and interested in, in psychical research. And so, yeah, it's kind of funny that they, they, they'd both apparently come back to, to dictate some, some afterlife material. Um, but a couple of comments on this book. So... So through Geraldine Cummins, Myers gives this gives his kind of picture of the afterlife, and he he divides it up into these seven planes, and um, well, it's kind of interesting because by the end of the book, he he basically says that he currently is at like the fourth or the fifth plane. I can't remember, but he but he describes the planes above him. So it's so it makes you wonder. Well, how does he know about the planes above him if he if he hasn't experienced them yet? So maybe you know maybe from his perspective. And this is, you know, I'm going to be, just be speaking as if, you know, as if it's all true, just mm -hmm. for, you know, just for ease. But it's almost as if, well, maybe he had these higher spirit guides telling him what the above was like. But you got to take, you know, you got to take some stuff with a grain of salt. Um, but the picture that he paints of this, of these planes is very interesting because he basically says that the way he describes it, between these planes, there's a period of almost like relaxation or going to sleep. And he describes these as, as journeys to Hades, as he calls it. Fitting, given that Myers was a classicist. Mm -hmm. So right after death, you go into this kind of stupor, sleep-like state of Hades, which can be just a, kind of like an easy passing for a lot of people, or a lot of people can kind of get lost in there, get lost in the haze, maybe not know that they're dead, and um, just be kind of groping through the fog, chasing after, you know, the possessions they left behind or the, the, the people that they, that they're looking for and just kind of get perhaps temporarily lost in this Hades like environment. But then in the, in the next plane, which, uh, which he calls the plane of illusion, this was the most interesting for me because, 
Um, there's there are some correlations with like near death experience stuff and religious traditions, but basically, has, as he describes it, um, this can be a or this is kind of like a, a realm or a place that is a dream world that is created uh, created based on the memories of the of the consciousness involved um, by and it's kind of this dual effort by these spirit beings that are that are already in this plane or the higher ones and the and the the dead person themselves who are creating this illusion world and this is it is a the reason it's called an, uh, the 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 plane of illusion is because when you find yourself there it might be like you you are presented your, yourself in like your ideal form young and full of vigor and the environment you find yourself in is the environment you'd want to find yourself in maybe it's your um like your home uh like an ideal cottage that resembles your own but everything's better because it's your ideal image and so just like in Hades you can get lost in this in this realm spend long periods of time there because it's this it's the thing that you've longed for it's the life that you've longed for um it reminds me of the the just the few scenes in gladiator um where the you know the 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 roman there you know he goes to the afterlife and he's moving his hand through the the wheat it's like that's the that's the place he wanted to go it's where he feels it's very where he feels safe but what myers is saying is that that's that's an illusion it's created out of the out of your own desires and like the the lifelong image that you've formed in your mind of basically it's that goal that you've been directing your life towards whether you're conscious of it or not and so you'll you'll encounter people you want to meet might be dead relatives or 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 um going in the kind of like an opposite direction any kind of vice you have will be fulfilled anything you want will be fulfilled because it is it's like a fantasy realm it's it's where you can live out your fantasies and so another way of kind of getting trapped there is through through the things that uh through whatever um let's say more negative vices that you might have so if you're a, a cruel person if you're a like a sadist or something you'll you'll find spirits that want to that want to um like fulfill those urges for you like like let you be cruel to them um sexuality you'll find lots of willing participants in your sexual escapades and it's th- th- there are similar descriptions not quite the same in the out of body experience stuff about um i think um, who's the guy that wrote all the out of body experiences books bob monroe i think robert monroe yeah. yeah and so he he talked about going through this realm of like these realms of just like heaps of bodies engaged in sexual activity. And it's just like the way he saw it is they were trapped there because they were so obsessed with, with sex that they didn't realize, first of all, they didn't realize they were dead and they didn't realize there was anything more. And so it was this constant, this constant search for, and, and uh, like, uh, uh, well, this constant search for sexual gratification that was never fulfilled, and that's one of the points that he that uh, Myers makes is that there's there's always something missing in these in this r- realm of illusion, um, in the in this fulfilling of fantasy because you're always chasing something that you can never quite get, and that's what it's like with with cruelty. He says for for people who are constantly looking for cruelty, it it never it never quite pays off, and you see that in real life too, like with serial killers that we've talked about how they they're chasing this fantasy that they've developed in their mind for years and every time they they fulfill that fantasy it's not it's never quite enough and they've got to do it again and they've got to do something different it's that it's that um this idea of perfection 
or yeah it's chasing this impossible ideal that they've built up in their mind and never quite getting there and that leaves them dissatisfied so they keep re-engaging in in these behaviors and that's why they're serial killers and you know they they get something out of it but it's never enough so they have to keep doing it and that's like what the the realm of the the plane of illusion is like it's this is it's this place where if you don't have your like uh your shit sorted out if you're not if if you don't have your your hierarchy in order of, of values in order mm-hmm. then you'll get trapped in these cycles that um that go nowhere well that that's very interesting uh in uh, life beyond the veil there is a um there are a few similar correlations going on uh, what's described in this book as the dim lands or areas that are physically and spiritually quite unpleasant to people um, because if 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 they are people who are just existing in in their um, physical existence to uh, satisfy their whims and and uh, engage in pride and arrogance and and self gratification, then they will naturally fit into these dimmer areas of the afterlife where they're surrounded by all of these other people who have very similar inclinations, mm-hmm. and it's it's an unpleasant place. Um, it's deeply upsetting to read about, but then there's something very interesting that, that, the, uh, that the beings present as a possibility for these individuals, and that is that there is always a kind of uh, chance um, for the, the people who found themselves in these dim lands or these uh, lands of illusion to, um, to grow uh, and to be uh, aided and assisted by uh, powerful beings whose job it is to to listen to them, to work with their psychology, and if necessary, to do a kind of uh, evacuation of this dim land to, to areas that are, are um, gradually more filled with light and understanding, where, where they're not going to be uh, subject to those beings who are closed off to the possibility, uh, who have closed themselves off to the possibility of growth uh, and knowledge of themselves. And um, that reminds me of, of this little passage from the book. Uh, that is what perplexes many who come over here. They expect to find all set ready for their dismissal from the presence into torture and cannot understand things as they are. Others who have cultivated a good opinion of, the, of their desserts are much disappointed when they are given a lowly place, sometimes a very lowly one, and not ushered immediately into the presence of the enthroned Christ to, to be hailed with his well done. Oh, believe me, dear son, there are many surprises awaiting those who come over here, some of a very joyful kind and others the reverse. I have only lately seen a very learned writer who had published several books talking to a lad who, in the earth life, was a stoker in a gas works and being instructed by him. (laughs) He was glad to learn, too, for he had partly learned humility. And the curious thing was that he did not so much mind sitting at the feet of this young spirit as going to his old friends here and owning up to his mistakes and his vanity of intellect in his past life. This, however, he will have to do sooner or later. 
and the young lad is preparing him for the task. It is also whimsical to us to see him still clinging to his old pride when we know all about him and his past and present status, which latter is rather low, and all the time he is trying to think he is hiding his thoughts from us. With such, with such their instructors have to exercise much patience, which is also a very good training for them. And now let us see if we can explain a difficulty which is perplexing many investigators into psychic matters. We mean the difficulty they have in understanding why we do not give them information, which they desire about one thing or another, which they have in their minds. You must try to realize that when we come down here, we are not in our proper element, but are hampered with limitations which are now strange to us. For instance, we have to work according to the laws which are in vogue in the earth realm, or we could not make you understand what we wish to do or say. Then, we often find that when anyone has his mind fixed on some particular person whom he wishes to hear or see, or some special matter about which he wishes to inquire, we are limited by the straightened means at our disposal. Other reservoirs, reservoirs of power in that inquirer are closed, and those only are open to us which he himself has willed should be open. And these are frequently not enough for us to work with. Then again, the activity of his will meets the activity of ours midway, as it were, and there is a clash, and the result is either confusion or nil. It is nearly always better to allow us to work in our own way, trustfully, and afterwards to examine critically what we manage to get through. If information on any particular point is desired, let that point be in your mind at times as you go about your daily occupation. We shall see it and take account of it, and, if it is possible and useful and lawful, we shall find opportunity and means, sooner or later, to answer it. Who is this we? We? Yeah. Well, the, this speaker is, uh, I, I think it's Zabadil. It's, it's one of the... <laughs> I don't like this guy. <laughs> well, you may not like the message, Corey, but it is truth. No, so he, they work in groups. They work in tandem, uh, according to this material. They, they network. They put their heads together. They consult beings that are of higher station than they are. And they, uh, they coordinate and they pass on tasks that they're unable to uh, because of their abilities, um, again, according to the material. Uh, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking this yeah. is one of the perennial problems that I have with, with this material is the fact that it can be so creepy. <laughs> you know, it's like these, uh, you know, if you open your, your mind to entertain this idea at all, you're like, wow, what a worm in the universe I am. Some <laughs> archangels are doing some stuff somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, you, as, that's a, I think that's a big barrier, um, to just any kind of, I mean, it's just you, the, the human ego wants to feel so much bigger than exactly. it is. Exactly. I mean, yeah. we all, and we also don't want to feel like we're in the some mouse labyrinth, you know, while these things are, you know, looking down at us. And you know what I mean? You don't want to get that impression. And, and clearly, I think that's a big message, too, that you take away from a lot of this stuff is that, um, is that there, there are cruel there are you know the, there there is that element of the universe of if this 
giant crazy universe that we're discussing here that is that is cruel there is cruelty in there 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 are um intelligences or whatever that are um negative but that you know there's no you know there's uh you have to keep in mind this kind of duality uh to the universe and then also you know like the the situation where you, where you're seeing all this stuff kind of take place you well, know when your parents disciplined you for something was it cruel well, I don't think of my parents as archangels so much as I do as <laughs> my parents. No, but you, you get the point. It, <laughs> yeah, it, absolutely. It's, it's and a, it's all about learning, too. I mean, yes. that's what it really it really comes down to. I don't think. feel so bad, Corey. We're all in the same boat over here. <laughs> well, I want to just come back to a, a previous point on like the the story of the big author that's being taught by the stoker. Mm-hmm. This is, um, well, I'll read one paragraph from Geraldine Cummins. So on the on the lower rungs of this ladder of consciousness dwell those those souls who still cling to human habits of thought to the earthly personality to their own individual line of thought on earth some of them have been extremely learned but knowledge does not make a wise man a great indian yogi a chinese sage a learned or holy christian father may dwell for eons of time within the fourth the third and fourth superterrestrial states. They are, typical representi- they are typical representatives of soul man. Soul man is the step above animal man, just ordinary people. And they have this, and they have his shortcomings. They cling to the line of thought which was theirs on earth, and so they remain sadly individualized in it. They are caught in its dream and are st- snared in the many errors thereof. For instance, the Indian yogi and the Chinese sage may still seek only to follow the aspiration of their particular religion or philosophy, the freeing of the soul from matter, ecstatic contemplation of the universe. So this is a theme that comes up in this book repeatedly, is that the the rigid belief systems that you hold while on earth carry over into the afterlife, and that these are actually a burden. Because um, like a devout Christian, for instance, might get into the realm of illusion and be convinced that they're in heaven. It's like, oh, I've made it. That's it. Okay, time to relax and listen to the harp music. And might be basically essentially trapped in that static state for all this time and be totally neglectful of the fact that there are vast distances yet to travel in the in the you know up this ladder of consciousness. And so again, bringing it back to the the practical sphere is that um if if this is the purpose of of life to to grow in in to evolve in spirit and in wisdom then you can't you can't be rigid in your beliefs because well first of all what if they're wrong chances are they're chances are they're wrong just you know right off the bat so if you hold on to these to these rigid beliefs, they're actually going to to hinder you and hinder your own development because because you haven't analyzed you haven't analyzed them you haven't questioned them, and um, and you'll basically be be stuck in them, and this um, this there's a couple other things in this and one is if the realm of illusion if you imagine it as this kind of fantasy created fantasy creation realm, then you can apply this to everyday life. For example, by looking at your fantasies, if you do some just imaginative work of going into your mind, first of all, like maybe catching yourself when you have a daydream, when you're when you're fantasizing about something, and then analyzing it, 
or first of all, recognizing that you're daydreaming, that you're you know, wasting your mental energy on some fantasy that doesn't have any basis in reality. And then maybe you can do some work in that fantasy. Well, what are you fantasizing about? What are, what are the main themes in your fantasies? What, uh, what kind of lack does it... What kind of lack does it show? What 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 does it show that you're that you're searching for that you don't have in your life? Um, what kind of like psychological features does it have? Do you are you constantly like um, perhaps? Do you, do you obsess ahead. yourself? Yeah. What are you obsessing over? Maybe maybe it's you're constantly fantasizing about um, awkward situations at work or having to or, or failing at a meeting that you have to go to and doing a presentation or something like that, whatever it is in your particular situation. If you, if you kind of put into practice what now, what presumably happens in the afterlife, then there might be some benefit to that both in the afterlife and definitely in your regular life. Because if you actually look at the, if you actually look at the things that frighten you or the things that you are, the, the, the kind of pleasures that you're seeking that you're not seeking consciously and you don't actually have a plan for and that don't, don't have any basis in reality, if you actually do some of that work now, you're going to be a more effective person. You're going to know yourself a bit better and you're not going to be just this um, kind of sad person fantasizing, you know, daydreaming about reality instead of actually living your life. So you're going to actually have benefits in your actual life. And this made me think about the the, the, like the review process. So you get to your, you get to, you, you die and then you review your life and see all the mistakes you've made. Well, you don't have to wait until you die to do that. You can review your life now and, and try to see the, the mistakes that you've made. You can do this before you go to bed at night, looking back at the day that you've just lived. And you, you, you look at the interactions you've had, you look at the things that you've said, you look at the way that you've behaved with the people around you, and you compare that to your ideal that you have. Well, what did I do wrong? Did I do anything wrong? Chances are you did something wrong because everyone does and no one lives up to, to their ideals. So you have to have an, or it, it pays, it pays in the present to have a, a, a picture of your ideal and to actually be able to judge yourself based on that ideal. Do you want to say something, Corey? Yeah, and and just to add then that there's no there's no eternal damnation necessarily around doing the you know doing things wrong. Basically, it's it all comes back to just taking what you know we've been uh, reading at at face value that uh, it's a, it's all about learning. That there's there's a number of different elements involved in in this these afterlife studies and other worlds uh, type studies, and one of them is the duality of of man. And that yes, we do have we are physical bodies. We have physical limitations, but these limitations are there in order for us to learn through the necessity of having to learn. And that the problems that you have, the you know whatever the sins that you commit are um, sins, in so far as you don't uh, learn from them. But if you take this entire thing, you know, seriously, like you said, like you don't have to wait till you you die to you know to think well shoot, you know, what could I have done better today? Or what can I do better tomorrow to be proactive? And I think in some way, when you start to apply those kinds of things, that what you're doing is you're showing that you've, what you've learned this, the, the lessons that you, that we're here to learn Mm -hmm. that, and that, you know, deep down, it's not about changing the world so that the utopia comes in. It's simply the, you know, you've, you've learned. Mm -hmm. And then maybe when you die, (laughs) <laughs> you can and, write a biography, right, well, <laughs> your autobiography. Well, you'll, you'll be prepared for this kind of thing. Like you won't have, 
ideally you won't have a rigid idea of what's going to happen. You'll just be aware of the possibilities. So when you find yourself perhaps experiencing a life review, you'll already have done it, right? You won't, it won't be as much work as it might've been otherwise, because one of the, even in this book, like one of the things I don't really like about some of the afterlife stuff is, is skirting over the, the unpleasant aspects. Like this guy gets into some of it, but he even he'll even say at various points, "Oh, well, I won't dwell on that nasty stuff." Yeah. But no, I think you should really consider it and be prepared for it. And and if you if you deal with that stuff in the in the present, then it might not be such a an issue later on. And this is, it's kind of a, the way I see it. It's a very it's a very rational perspective to take on the afterlife in comparison to the more traditional views on the afterlife. So just the, the very rigid, like heaven or hell, for instance. Um, if, you, if you've considered these things, well, if you really deeply believe in this eternal torment, you might go there and you might experience it. And it might, be, it might seem like an eternity, but again, without the, the awareness that, well, maybe I'm just dreaming this eternity of torment. Maybe I'm partially creating this for myself. And again, that applies to real life. If you're living in a perpetual torment in your life, maybe there, there, maybe there's something you can change. Maybe there's something you can do a bit better to get out of that torment. Chances are that you can, um, because a lot of people have done it. Um, like picking themselves up out of that hellhole that they're in in their everyday lives and making something, making something more worth living about their about their I know everyday lives. So there's from my perspective it's it pays off either way well <laughs> whether you believe in it or well, not well why believe in that when you can believe that the world is just a big accident and nothing matters mm-hmm. well that, that that's the thing <laughs> I, I mean uh you said earlier Corey, that that um you know we're we're here to learn certain things the other choice is that uh you don't have to you you're you're you yeah. know the uh life on uh life on earth presents you with a with another possibility you can be totally self-satisfied and not learn a damn thing and then uh, find yourself utterly surprised uh, as a possibility to to have this same consciousness and belief in another in another unpleasant sphere of existence um, so the the choice is ours uh, and in acknowledging that choice we also get to decide just how much we want to learn or, or open our um, our, our ways of thinking to ideas that that may uh, in fact lift, lift us out of these uh, problems that we quite often make for ourselves um, and it does you don't even have to think of it in, in any kind of me- metaphysical or spiritual sense at all you can think of it very practically mm-hmm. uh, a la you know uh, Stephen Covey's habits of uh, effective people if you wanted to um, but on the subject of being proactive, uh, there was another passage here that I, that I found quite interesting on the subject of prayer, um, because I think, um, well, I'll speak for myself, you know, sometimes, uh, life is quite difficult and, and, um, in a, uh, in a fit of, uh, of difficulty and challenge, you might, um, you might reach out in, in such a way as to uh, ask for some assistance um, and some ideas and some, some uh, way forward when, when things seem implacable. 
Um, so here's this passage here. Uh, I don't know which archangel or, or being it is that, that's describing this. There are several in the book. It's probably a jerk. <laughs> One thing it may be well to notice is the efficacy of prayer and meditation. You have already received some instruction on this subject, and we would add to it. Prayer is not merely the asking for something you wish to attain. It is much more than that. And, because it is so, it should receive more careful consideration than it has yet received. What you have to do in order to make prayer a, a power is to cast aside the temporal and fix your mind and spirit on the eternal. When you do that, you find that many items you would have included in your prayer drop out from the very incongruity of their presence, and the greater and wider issues become to you the focus of your creative powers. For prayer is really creative, as the exercise of the will, as seen in our Lord's miracles, such as the feeding of the 5,000. I don't know what that is, or remember. And when prayer is offered with this conviction, then the object is created and the prayer is answered. That is, the objective answers to the subjective in such a way that an actual creation has taken place. This does not happen when the prayer is wrongly directed. Then the projection of the will glances off at a tangent, and the effect is only proportionate to the scattered rays by which the objective is touched. Also, when the prayer is mixed with motives unworthy, it is proportionately weakened, and also meets with opposing or regulating wills on this side, as the case may require. And so the effect is not attained or desired. Now, all this may sound rather vague, but, is by, but it is by no means vague to us. For you must know that there are appointed guardians of prayer here whose duty it is to analyze and sift prayers offered by those on earth and separate them into divisions and departments and pass them on to be examined by others and dealt with according to their merit and power. In order that this may be done perfectly, it is necessary that we study the vibrations of prayer as your scientists study the vibrations of sound and light. As they are able to analyze and separate and classify the rays of light, so are we able to deal with your prayers. And as there, and as there are light rays with which they are confessedly unable to deal, so many prayers present to us those deeper tones which are beyond the range of our study and knowledge. These we pass on to those of higher grade, to be dealt with in their greater wisdom. And do not think that these latter are always found among the prayers of the wise. They are frequently found in the prayers of children, whose petitions and sighs are as carefully considered here as those of nations. This is very interesting to me. Whole prayer bureaucracy. Yes, uh, a a um, <clears throat> well that that uh, that you have you know as a possibility these beings whose job it is to to consider um, because what is a prayer? It's a it's a uh, it's a a message a um, a signal a, an act of humility that's being communicated to powers greater than or above us as individuals, um, and, and it's a proclamation of one's own um, uh, ignorance, uh, difficulties, challenges, 
that acknowledges the existence of higher powers that that may be in a position to be of assistance. So, um, yeah, and just yeah. as uh, just as a personal exercise, I mean, it's been so long um, since you know I've done it like regularly before bed. But I remember as a kid, you know, just praying mm-hmm. um, for. You, you know, you pray for mom, you pray for dad, you pray for, you know, everybody else in the family. And then, and then you're like, and if I could get that new Mega Man toy, that'd be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um, but, you know, as you're praying, you know, you're putting your heart into it and, um, um, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're really doing your, your best to, to be authentic and to really, uh, think about the person and, you know, and, and really, you know, with the intention you, you're you're giving you know some part of your heart you know I think to to somebody and and uh, I know that and I worked as a as a homeless shelter manager for a while and uh, before every dinner we would get together and it'd say a, a prayer or if somebody you know special that decided they had a prayer to say that they'd come in and say a prayer and it was always something very um, very effective about it I and. Uh, very effective in promoting some kind of an atmosphere of trust, and you know, there's just something very healthy and beneficial, I think, mm-hmm. about about prayer in general. Whether or not you know, there's a bureaucracy that's sitting there stamping this <laughs> prayer, and then they're like, "Void, cancel." You know? <laughs> well, well, like one of the um, so I had a difficult time uh, some time ago, and it was with a, a friend, and I was praying for understanding. To, to be a better friend mm-hmm. um, and and that the situation wouldn't become worse than it was. And at some point during this attempt at a prayer, I thought, no, no, stop, stop praying for yourself. Stop praying for less anguish over mm-hmm. this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Pray for the other person. Uh, you know, pray for their well-being and their understanding and, and their... Um, and their relief. And I don't know if it, you know, I don't know for a fact that it was the, the right prayer or the right attitude to take, but, uh, it was a, for me, a kind of a, it, it did feel right. It felt like, uh, I was realizing, um, at least one correct or more correct, uh, dimension to what it means to prayer with all your heart as as you said, Corey, and to really, um, think of the other. So, um, well, maybe I just wanted to talk about one other subject on this and that's reincarnation because different religions have different views on, of course, what happens when you die. Some religions believe in reincarnation, some don't. So what I found interesting about Geraldine Cummins book is the kind of combination of both possibilities. Because from the Christian perspective, you have one life and then you go to the afterlife and that's it. And from an Eastern, like maybe a a Buddhist perspective, reincarnation is just accepted. You come back. And I personally think the evidence for reincarnation is pretty good. Um, Again, it's talked about in some of those books that I mentioned. Um, Ian Stevenson did a lot of good work on that. And I can't remember the name of the guy that's kind of taken over the the mantle of this kind of research, but... uh, if you search Ian Stevenson, you'll find uh, this guy's this, this guy's books too. But the question is, well, what is reincarnation then exactly? Like, what is what does that even mean? And in Road to Immortality, Myers gives 
a, a couple of very interesting ideas on what that actually is. He says um, a lot of what we might think of as reincarnation isn't actually reincarnation. But he says reincarnation is possible. Um, but it's kind of the, it's in the job description of what he calls those soul men. So the people that are a bit more, a bit more advanced uh, spiritually. And that in these higher planes, at a certain level of, of advancement, you can come back, you can reincarnate. And then that's an actual reincarnation. It's, it's your individuality reincarnating in, uh, in a new body. But what we often tend to think of as reincarnation is actually just the repetition of a pattern. So one of the things we didn't talk about is his oh, one of his overarching ideas is this idea of a group soul that uh, that all all souls are part of essentially a group. They are they're like cells in a body, but they're soul cells in a soul body. And that in the what what might happen is that you live your life, you establish a pattern, you learn certain things, you have certain features, and you have certain talents and certain achievements, and then on your death that. That that is an established pattern, basically, and then that pattern is then available to be essentially reused and carried on by a different soul fragment. So now it inhabits that consciousness, and and for all intents and purposes, like if you're looking at the the evidence, if you have the, the ability to look at it, you you might say, oh well, that's a reincarnation of that person. When it's according to Myers, it's not. It's just it's just the pattern. It's just the life pattern. It's like uh, the in in a sense that that essence of that of that pattern just kind of um, well, the the soul might like dissolve into the into the soul pool, and then a different a different um, different bunch of or different fragment emerges emerges out of that soul pool and adopts the shape that has been established in that previous life. So that that's an interesting way of looking at it because it's 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 counterintuitive to the ideas that are are put forward about reincarnation. That um, if you look at the 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 evidence, the the cases for reincarnation. These are often children um, who have memories of past lives and whose whose memories match up with people that they're able to identify. Oftentimes, involving very uh, sudden, traumatic, and violent deaths. It might be like a car crash or a murder or something like that. And the patterns the patterns the same. Even on a physical level, you'll have uh, facial characteristics. They look similar. They've got. Um, defor- deformities, like uh, maybe um, if the person died and had was missing a uh, was missing a hand, the the new body, the new you know person might have been born with a deformity missing that hand, or having birthmarks, like basically um, some cases, just little deformities might be moles or just um, like blemishes on the skin, where in the pattern of like a gunshot wound, or almost as though they've been imprinted with yeah. with something uh, non physical. Right. Yeah, like the, their shape, like the the heightened emotion of that violent death has has crystallized that that injury into some immaterial form that then guides the the development of like the fetus in utero and they they're born with that shape and so that's those seem like a very good case for that soul died and then came back in this body and remembers all these things and it could be or it could be the pattern was established the pattern was abruptly broken off and then continued in a new form but with a a totally different soul fragment or or whatever um so an interesting possibility just to to keep in mind again to to not be too rigid in the in the belief system that you have 
it reminded me too of um, one of Gurdjieff's ideas. We've mentioned Gurdjieff a few times on the show. He, he had this. His idea was that that you don't reincarnate unless you have a soul, and no one has a soul until they've developed a soul. And that when when uh, when you when you die, that uh, you're basically like without having crystallized your own soul. That whatever that is just dissolves after a certain amount of time and there's no reincarnation or if it might be developed it lives on for a certain amount of time but and then and then can reincarnate um again very similar to Geraldine Cummins but basically reincarnation isn't a isn't necessarily a a, a given um it isn't necessarily something that happens automatically and for everyone and uh, so it, it and in one sense it can be seen as a curse and a, which is i think what a lot what a lot of what many religions see it as is, you know, you have to come back here or it can be a, a duty, like a responsibility that you take on for yourself that some very rare individuals take on for themselves. Or it can just be a, an artifact of something that we don't understand when we, when we look at it, we interpret it as reincarnation when it's not actually that in fact. So w- one thing that I found interesting, I'm not quite sure what I think about it in this book. One final thing is, um, is this, this, v- I guess you could call it a vision that he has of the of the afterlife as as this this place where you die and then then you just then you just progress through these higher planes and it's just it's just all roses kind of like it might be hard work but you've done your life you've done your work on on earth and then you just progress through these spheres these immaterial spheres until you you're one with uh, the godhead um yeah, I don't know. I don't know how accurate that is. Um, <laughs> according to this book, it's not. Yep. That uh, that there are e- even advanced beings in higher spheres are presented with some challenges for which they uh, sometimes fail, and and are knocked down several spheres. Well, you know, he talks about that too. Yeah. You know, uh, so I mean, you know, if if mm-hmm. if if all of this is even to be uh, considered as a possibility, but it is a a very um, uh, like you said, I, I mean, I, I don't think you can look at any of this material and be too rigid about it. You, that you really have to uh, consider all the possibilities and um, and do a little work uh, because some of it does sound um, incorrect or wrong, and that could just be uh, a reflection of, of one's own ignorance or or uh, rigidity, uh, or it could be. Uh, something else. Who knows? Well, or it could be like if if we take this idea of illusion land seriously, of living in a dreamland. People have great imaginations, and when you die, presumably you have the same degree of imagination that you had on Earth, maybe even greater. So we get all these messages, basically from the imaginations of people who may have created worlds out there in the afterlife that aren't the whole picture or their particular picture and mm-hmm. might be inhabited by millions of or thousands of beings who all share the same illusion of the afterlife. So it's, you, you're, you come back to the, the perspective of having a, a healthy dose of skepticism about it so that, so that you don't get trapped in, in a, um, you don't get trapped in a rigid belief system that then limits, um, limits your, um, limits your capability, your capacity for whatever spiritual advancement is. Because if you're if you're limited, if you're if you're stuck in a in a rigid belief system, then it, it's a prison of your own creation that you may never or you may have a lot of difficulty escaping. So again, if you put into practice something 
in life now, you can escape that prison, presumably, in life now, as opposed to spending eons in a, a really cool fantasy world after you die that is, a, that is basically an illusion that you've created for yourself and collectively with under, other individuals and that uh, um, you might not have to inhabit. Did you have anything else to add, Corey? Well, I think that's a good place to end this show. Uh, end your illusions. Um, find out what your illusions are first, maybe. And, um, yeah, it's a very interesting topic, uh, the afterlife. We hope to be re revisiting it at some point in the not-too-distant future. Uh, in the meantime, thanks for listening, folks. We appreciate it. Uh, smash like and hit subscribe, and uh, we'll see you again very soon.